This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. If you like The New European podcast, you're going to love The New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do. A different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining, and when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, but make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e-edition. You're going to love it and you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello Snowflakes and welcome to the new European podcast. We bring you a British eye on European politics and culture and we are the people who bring you the new European newspaper to which you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm joined by Matt Kelly who is the publisher and the editor-in-chief of the new European. Hello Matt. Hello Steve. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm, it's actually my birthday today, so I'm... Happy birthday. Thank you. I'm feeling good, actually, yeah. Happy birthday. And what, what presents have you got? Um, I got a pair of red socks and a kind of mauve merino wool um, 
pull over from my mum and dad. I got, uh, uh, oh, I got the, you know, like the big Lebowski um, jumper, cardigan thing. Oh, yes. That he wears. I got one of them, basically, which is great. I'm not even that much of a fan of the film, but the jumper's pretty good. And um, what else did I get? I got a flat cap, proving my northern cred, although it's a very nice kind of cashmere flat cap. I don't think my grandfather would have recognised it in the docks of Bootle, but it's... Uh... <laughs> in his cashmere uh, flat cap. Yeah. Um, well, we have got... That's that's tremendous. And if you'd known... If only you'd been a friend of, of one of the cabinet, you could have got a, a 300 million PPE contract as well. <laughs> but, but sadly, not this... Maybe maybe next year. Next Matt. year, I'll have to cultivate those kind of... That networking. Later on, we've got Rupert Reed from uh, the University of East Anglia, uh, who is uh, a member of Extinction Rebellion. He's coming, uh, he'll be joining us to talk about this week's uh, new European cover story, which uh, is asking if a green Brexit is possible and whether some good can come out of this whole disaster in terms of an environmental dividend. Um, before uh, Before we talk to him... Let's go over the news from Britain. And- I'll tell you what, before you make, before you go into that, I think we ought to say thank you and farewell to the wonderful Richard Porritt. Oh, yes, of course. Who, um, Richard is a great friend of the New European, and any, everyone who listens to this podcast will be gutted that you're listening to this scouse nasal drawl instead of his chirpy kind of East Anglian tilt. But Richard, when we bought the newspaper... Uh, Richard obviously had a job with Archon and is staying there doing his brilliant journalism at Archon. Um, so unfortunately, uh, he won't be able to join us now, um, except I, ho- I hope from time to time he'll come on and say hello, because uh, I know he's much beloved, isn't he? He certainly is. And I want to, I did want to th- uh, thank Richard and I wanted to thank uh, loads of people who have got in touch um, to uh, to wish him well. Burstall boy. Dickens at Dickens Girl. Uh, who else have we got? Um, at River Absurd. At Nick Redding. Surely that can't be his real name. He's not got a sensible name like at, at River Absurd. Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, there's. I mean, absolutely loads of them. So, yeah. uh, so thank you to you. Counted at Counter Tenorist, which is um, which is uh, uh, expressed lovely sentiments. But also, is a very good, um, a very good Twitter handle. And listen, uh, guys. So everyone who's listening, I'll, I, I won't try and be Richard because I can't. But I'll be myself, and I hope you'll get used to the change. So please persevere and stick with. That is kind of that's that's what we hoped for, but also feared. So <laughs> there you go. Um, the, the the week's big news from from Britain, obviously, is. Um, is that the lockdown, uh, the roadmap out of lockdown, another roadmap out of another lockdown has been published. Um, schools are going back on March the 8th as the yeah. parents of three school-aged children. I'm sure you're yeah. told by this. Oh, man. Well, I think I share the sentiment of every parent in the land, which is thank God for that. I mean, as much as I love spending a lot of time with the kids, it really, I mean, it does... Oh, it's hard. You know, it's just hard. And school, homeschooling is just impossible with a six-year-old. You know, I mean, he's, the, the amount of match attack bribes I've had to buy him just to write, you know, sentences in handwriting is is ridiculous. So I'll be 
as much as I love them all, I, I, I really am looking forward to having a bit of time back to myself and, and Mrs. Kelly. Yes, I'm sure you, I'm sure you are. Um, I don't know whether it's the cynic in me, but when I saw that the the lockdown restrictions were to be lifted completely on if everything goes to plan on June the 21st, I did kind of think, is there anything else that, that you know, is there a fifth year anniversary of anything that happens around June the 21st? <laughs> and um, and are we going to be, you know, is the intention for us to mark this, this weekend ah. of freedom and... Uh, and the fifth anniversary of the the re- and the anniversary of the referendum in years to come. Yeah. Um, well, it's also the fifth. It's very close to the fifth anniversary of the New European as well. Well, it is. Um, so maybe maybe he's yeah. doing it for that. Yeah. Uh, but that would make you know what? I, because I'm essentially thick. I hadn't put two and two together there. But you're absolutely right. That's yeah. That, that is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there'll be rallies, won't there? Rallies in London of kind of. Of all all pent up joy at the great success that Brexit's been, people will be able to flood flood the, the mall, you know, and and, and wave their flags at, at, at just how successful everything's been and how great Britain suddenly become overnight. Yes, I did. Uh, I, I, I must. I am a cynical person, but I did think, oh, maybe there is. Maybe there's somebody somebody in Downing Street's gone. What about five weeks? Then it will take it to June the twenty first. Anyway. Uh, I mean, from I have no longer got. Uh, I've got a, a, a one uh, offspring of university yeah. uh, age level, so I've not got that. Obviously, you know, I, I, I'm not counting the days or anything, but it is 45 days until I can sit in a beer garden drinking <laughs> warm beer in the rain with everybody else. So watching uh, Manchester City cruise to to victory. Well, so, see, that, that's how it seems to. But to you told me you've gone off. You've gone off football this year. I've picked, you said I've picked, a, I've picked the wrong year to stop watching football. But I, I've got. I've got to say, I, I have. I have not watched a full um, a full match since. Since I don't think I, I don't think I've watched a full ninety minutes of football um, on TV. Obviously, yeah. since I went to the League Cup final, which we won, which was about. I think yeah. that, was, that was about two about a year ago today. That's uh, amazing. A year ago this week. Because you're uh, a big you're a big city fan. I am, yeah. Um, well you were. It's made me realise how much of it is about the ritual of going yeah. um uh, with your friends and um and how much yeah. of it is it, how much of it I've, I've sort of found in the early days very much and and still the same now I, I just find that the whole thing rather surreal that these mm. uh, that these people are in these bubbles playing sport and yeah uh, while all the the chaos is go is is being visited on the rest of us but yeah. you know well I mean uh, I'm, I'm almost the exact opposite in every regard there because. Uh, it occurred to me the other week, this is the first time in my life, and I've been following Liverpool since I was like six. This is the first time in my life that I've watched every single minute of every game they've played so far in, in a season because it's all been there on TV. Yeah, it's all been available. And so, us. you know, unless you are one of these uh, fans who can go home and away and, and watch everything, then that's never been possible, you know. But So I've watched every game, and I'll tell you, what I have encountered, and I don't want to give people the impression this is going to become some laddish football show because it, it will stop in a minute, but you do notice how different players, their their performance dips and rises from game to game. It's fascinating. You know, 
Right, so you get a different insight, I think, of the game when you when you're watching it all the time and without the noise. I, I love it to be honest because you can hear everything the manager's saying and the yells of the players. Some occasion bursts of swear words and, and sort of quite brutal encouragement to uh, to midfielders to get their asses into gear. But so so I'm I'm a big fan of um, of the football season this year, except for the fact that Liverpool have been rubbish. Anyway, we'll move on. Then. We will we will move on. But it's inter- I, I, th- I do think it's interesting. I've kind of resolved to um, I've resolved to, to take less of an interest in in um, a lesser obsessive interest in football anyway before all of this because as I've said on this podcast before, you know, the, even the year where we won Manchester City won four trophies. Um, uh, and, and were sort of all concrete, which was the season before this all yeah. happened. Um, I, I, yeah. I found it so incredibly tense every minute that I didn't really stop to to um, to smell the roses and enjoy it. And and now yeah. the tension is kind of out of it, isn't it? For yeah. for yeah. all the reasons that that you say. But um, yeah. I don't know whether what other people have have, have given up and uh, and and picked up during all this, but. Get yeah. to let us know. I would love um, to. I'd love to know new careers, new hobbies, new new habits that lockdowns produced. It'd be very interesting. Yes, it definitely. Um, it definitely would. We are um, heading into the the budget. There mm. is. Uh, I mean, there are as many leaks on this as there have been about the the roadmap out of lockdown. It looks like the COVID support furloughs, stamp duty cuts is all going to go through to June. Yeah. But it's going to be paid for with a corporation tax rise going up to 25%, probably staggered. There'll be rises in capital gains tax. There's talk of a windfall tax on supermarkets. I mean, yeah. supermarkets, you know, let's hope that they can get rid of some of those low paid staff that have been um, putting their lives on the line and, and yeah. supporting us. I mean, I'm not sure whether it's time for a windfall tax on supermarkets. Uh, I think that's a, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, this, the, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that Labour are threatening not to support this rise in corporation tax and the left of Labour are saying, of course you need to support a rise in corporation tax. There are quite a few Tories yeah. um, MPs who, who are fretful about this rise in corporation tax as well. What do you make of all of this? Well, I mean, it seems... So, I mean, the weird thing for me, I'm not sure I completely agree with you on the, the idea of a windfall tax. I mean, maybe supermarkets aren't exactly the right um, sector to, to go after, but there are companies that have done very well throughout lockdown for various reasons you know um amazon for amazon, instance yeah i mean for god's sake amazon it's now taken the world over isn't it i don't know you know we're going to run out of cardboard boxes at some point soon but it's it is you know amazon's profits in the uk must have gone up i don't know threefold at least i would have thought but you know they they barely pay any tax in the uk as it is so if i was the Chancellor and wanted to do something that wasn't going to, um, you know, further make make it further difficult for a lot of companies that are, must already be struggling, you know, and will need profits to invest in, in a recovery and the future. You know, the idea of hitting your general business with higher corporation tax seems a bit nuts to me. But if you can identify a few people and like Amazon, like the big uh, the big um, uh, digital companies that pay very little tax in the UK, you know, and really make a point of going after them and getting them to pay their fair share of taxes 
from from what they're earning in this country. I don't think you'd see any complaint from watching a bunch of Californians uh, whining about how suddenly tough the UK market had got. You know, go after go after these people who who have avoided tax by having their base in Luxembourg for the last twenty years. You know, it's like if we're going to uh, you know, perhaps try and look through upsides to the situation we're in. Well, we're out of the European Union now. Let's really set our own taxation policies for these international giants that do very well in the UK, but pay very little tax. Yes, um, I think, I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more about Amazon and other uh, companies who uh, use these um, rules to pay very little tax. Um I think it's very interesting to see Harry Cole uh, in The Sun praising, uh, appearing to praise Keir Starmer's approach. And uh, I think, you know, people on the right are sceptical about uh, about Rishi Sunak. And maybe there's some of this is a coordinated campaign to get him to wind his neck in a little bit before next Tuesday. Um, yeah. Extraordinary editorial in the sun saying... I, think, I haven't read it because I don't read it, but oh, tell, tell me... I mean, it says, who is this politician who soundly agrees with the sun that now is not the time for tax rises for businesses? Yes. Uh, Sir Starmer, the Starmer chameleon, uh, the same man who campaigned a year ago to install mega-taxing Brexit-reversing Marxists in Downing Street. Right. Um, uh, and here he is making sense. Right. While, while Rishi Sunak seems focused on tax hikes to whittle down the COVID debt, increasing corporation tax now when Britain desperately needs firms to grow jobs and growth uh, is madness. So, well, I... I... You know, if I was Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, I'd both be terrified. It's, uh, you know, if you're for different reasons, if you're the, if you're a Tory chancellor, you don't want the sun pouring, pouring stuff all over you from a great height. But also, if you're Keir Starmer, the last bloody friend you need in media is Harry Cole of the Sun. Well, you know? yeah, it's not going to, uh, it's yes, it's not going to sell him to the uh, to, to the left of the Labour Party already, or any or any part of the Labour Party. I'd have thought, you know, no, that's true. You know? Yes, that is true. I mean, news from Europe this week: we're still we're still rowing over fish and shellfish, and uh, I think if you watch George Eustace on Channel Four News on. I think it was Monday night. He said that basically everything is fine and that none of this yeah. is. A, there are a few teething problems. Yeah. Uh, he um, he said. Um, however, the the EU and, and Britain still um, feuding over fish and shellfish. I really like yeah. the the senior minister, unnamed senior minister, who said to the Mail on Sunday, "The EU is out for petty revenge," and in the same breath talked uh, said that we were going to ban mineral water and seed potatoes from the EU. Uh, so, so no no petty revenge there then. No, so no more Evian. <laughs> exactly, no more Evian. Oh well, my God. Evian, but only if it's made in Rotherham. Yeah, well, um, the, uh, apparently Perrier was uh, a British company, wasn't it? Did you know that? Right. Well, Will Self said so in, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the col- in his column last week, I think. He said that... Uh, well, I don't know. It wasn't. It was. Do you know where he said it? It was on. Um, he did a really good Radio Four show about his addiction to Perrier, and um, and apparently, and he dropped in the bombshell that Perrier was British. <laughs> really, Fred yeah. Perrier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
German newspaper Bilt has done a front page that says Britain, we envy you. I saw that, yeah. 27% of Britons, that's that's adult Britons, isn't it, has has received a jab. It's only 6% in Germany, which and it's about the same in other European countries. I mean, you've got to... You've got to give credit where it's due, and the and the rollout of the vaccinations in the UK, I think, has been you know impressive. Um, that seems to be the one the one element they've got right. Uh, unfortunately, I think it was the urgency was inspired by the fact that they screwed every other single step of the journey up. You know, and we've got you know ridiculous death rates and infection rates and everything, but they you know they do seem to have mobilised um, the forces. Uh, competently in this regard and we've got a lot of people getting their vaccinations I just spoke to my mum and dad you know they had their first one whenever it was back in January yeah back in early January and then they've got their second coming up in April and so people I think are starting to look forward a bit to to the days when they can re-engage with their grandkids and stuff so so look you know I, I think Bill which has got a history of of praising Britain whenever it wants to kind of kick its own government. That's what they do. And 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 they stick um I mean it's funny, they on their front page, because people who don't know, Bill is I think it's now the biggest selling paper in Europe. It sells about three and a half million copies a day or something like that. And it's very much a tabloid, isn't it? Very tabloidy. It's it's like it's like the mirror or the star or the sun really in in, in German. And they stick this uh, a huge Union Jack on the front page and, and this headline, Britain, we envy you. And, well, and I was thinking, could you ever imagine the, the, you know, the Daily Star or the, or the Sun putting a great big German flag on the front page saying, good on you, Germany? I mean, it would be the end of them. But, uh, but the Germans, uh, they take it a bit more seriously, actually, and they, they look at what, um, what we're doing over here. And I think they are a bit envious of the way that we've all had our jabs. And the, I mean, and the, the knock-on thing, which is is mentioned in that article as well, which I which I, I read um, I read yesterday, is that Merkel is talking about having to in the threat of a third wave hitting Germany uh, mm. because of of lack of vaccinations uh, and Germany potentially having to go into tighter lockdown yeah. uh, controls, just as Britain emerges out of lockdown controls yeah. um, i mean but, but germany's infection rate is is about half that of the uk's isn't it yeah yeah exactly so yeah there's a, there's a little bit of scope but they yeah. do need to ramp it up as we've said before uh i wanted to mention this report from the university of birmingham and warwick yeah. which has has talked about the ways that the leave campaign made brexit into a religion oh. in order to win a referendum Um, It says the campaigns focused on secularised theological concepts such as sovereignty uh, to place the blame for Britain's problems at the feet of the EU. uh, And it used the NHS as the country's holy grail that could be rescued from European forces, which threatened Britain's unique historical place in the world. I don't think that is any... Um, I don't think there's any sort of big news there. I think it's well, I'm just going to say, what took him so long? You know, it's <laughs> like we've been saying this for four bloody years now. Exactly, but I do think that it, it is um, a talk of the Holy Grail has reminded me about how um, Monty Python and the Holy <laughs> Grail, this our uh, our whole Brexit thing is, because of course we've had the 
you know, Dominic Cummings with his lengthy quest to, to find a castle. We've had um, <laughs> we've had the French taunter Emmanuel Macron, uh, another French taunter this week saying Boris Johnson um, is, is a, a liar and out in it for himself. I saw that. And, yeah. And unlike Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the whole thing is likely to end with several people being taken away by the police force, I would imagine. Um, but, um, yeah, so if we, if, we, right. if we wheel a huge Trojan rabbit <laughs> full of British fish somewhere then uh, as an attempt to, to get it to sell in the, the EU, then maybe that'll be it. Um, that would be great. Maybe we should do that as a marketing stunt for the newspaper. Yes, that, that's... Stick one on a ferry. The Trojan rabbit. Um, so, uh, yeah. I also, before uh, before Rupert rejoins us, I also wanted to talk about um, stuff that is in the newspaper this week. Rupert Reed, uh, our theme is, is, uh, is a green Brexit possible? Is mm. something good going to come out of all of this? Rupert Reed, um, as you will hear, says... Maybe Ian Dunn a bit more sceptical. We've also got a fascinating report on a, uh, a city in Finland which is uh, aiming to, to achieve carbon neutrality in the next five years. It's, it's yes. really good stuff. There's there's some great stuff in in the print edition of the New European. Um, I know yours is in front of you. Mine's not um, yet. not not yet come through the door. Yeah. Um, We've got Jason Solomons, the film writer, who is writing about um, the new Netflix documentary about Pele. That's which right. I'm very much looking forward to. And yeah. um, I saw this week on social media that you had posted a, a picture yeah. of uh, your mum with Pele. <laughs> That's right, my mum. Who was a journalist? About? Well, she's a journalist, was a journalist, uh, retired now, but she used to be a woman's editor of the. Daily Post in in Merseyside, and um, uh, in 1966 they sent her up to Hamden to interview Pele. Um, I think they must have been training up in. Did they was Hamden one of the venues? It must have been, mustn't it? it must yeah. have been, yeah. So so anyway, she interviewed Pele. And well, they must have been training up there because I guess it was all in England, wasn't it? Well, that's what I was just thinking. You know, they must have been the Brazilians must have had a training camp up in in Hamden, but. Um, and she interviewed Pele, and uh, uh, there's a fabulous photo of, of my mum looking very glamorous, if I may say so, and and Pele um, leaning in attentively. And 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 of course, I started. I looked at the um, at the photo a bit more closely. And my mum's got her notebook, and but Pele's writing in it, right? And so it did occur to me that I hope my mum had the sense at the time. This is before she was married, you know. I hope she got his number. <laughs> <laughs> And, and kept in touch. Although anybody who's seen me play football, well, there's no, there's no genetic inheritance. With uh, <laughs> they used to come, when I play football, they used to call me the fireman because everything I touched went out. But it was <laughs> it, 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 it's a great photo. But the the piece by Solomon's is terrific, and there are these fantastic documentaries you get in now um, of these wonderful figures. There's another one coming up on Ernest Hemingway, who I'm a a massive fab, fan of, and. And Hemingway's um, uh, Ken Burns, who did the oh, those yeah. great documentaries on the Civil, the Civil War and Vietnam, American Civil War and uh, Vietnam, and several others. He's done a, I think, a six-hour documentary on on Hemingway, which comes out in in April, which I'm really, really looking forward to writing about uh, and and watching. So, yeah, no, that was um, my mum's story. She also interviewed the Beatles a couple of times um, in their underwear once in. Um, 
I think at the Palladium backstage and yeah, no, I mean, when you were in Liverpool in the 60s, you know, it was a great place to be a journalist. There was loads going on. There was obviously the rise of the football teams and the music scene and everything. So, yeah, my mum and my dad both had great um, journalist careers in, in Liverpool for a couple of decades. And that's where they met. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, now... it, hasn't, it hasn't rubbed off, unfortunately, <laughs> but we do our best. Uh, now, we're very happy to be joined by uh, Rupert Reed. Uh, Rupert, can you hear us? Oh, hello, Rupert. Hello, Rupert. Hi. He's here. Uh, Rupert is uh, a philosophy professor at the University of East Anglia. He's a Green Party uh, campaigner, a former spokesman for Extinction Rebellion, and he was one of five members who was called in to discuss environmental affairs with Michael Gove, who was then the DEFRA secretary. When was that, Rupert? That was a couple of years ago. that was in, uh, in the initial meeting with Gove was in autumn of 2017. Oh, OK. So it was longer than that. OK. Uh, and then there were subsequent meetings. He, I've, got to, I've got to warn you, Rupert, he's not exactly a, a, a hero figure for listeners to this podcast. And Indeed. Because of the new European. But, so. yes. What, what yes. do you make of him, Rupert? What's he like in the flesh? So I've known uh, Michael for for many years. He and I have always disagreed completely um, politically, and we used to debate against each other in the Oxford Union. I was one of the very few who ever got the better of him, actually, in the Oxford Union, because he is a very, very uh, smooth debater. Um, And basically, when he found out that I was doing this uh, detailed work on the precautionary principle in relation to the EU and Brexit, he uh, invited me in to, to see him. And uh, I started talking to him about the precautionary principle. And he said, yeah, that's great. But look, what I'd really like is for you to give me more of a sort of sense of what a joined up green philosophy would look like across the piece, which I thought was quite impressive, really. I mean, the thing about Michael is that say what you like about him. And he's made many horrific mistakes, including recently in relation to coronavirus as well as Brexit. Say what you like about him, he is at least a bit of an intellectual heavyweight, and that's not something that happens very much nowadays in politics, certainly in the modern Conservative Party. Yeah, he's a bit of a backstabber as well, though, isn't he, to be fair? He's, uh, he's a very, very smooth and, uh, and a polite uh, person, and uh, it's always wise to watch out for such people. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I would trust him with, uh, with anything important, but uh, certainly he's, he's got a lot of important stuff on his plate right now. And, the, and, the, and one of the questions I think that comes out of your piece and also comes out of Ian Dunt's uh, piece, uh, which is also in our kind of green Brexit special, as we've themed it this week, Rupert, is, is whether um, whether they can be trusted uh, with uh, with this. But, but before that, you are asking um, whether it's possible that Brexit can be used to improve uh, the UK's response to the ongoing uh, environmental crisis, the, the, yeah. the, all, all of the fears, and, and, and whether out of the, all of this chaos, there may be some kind of green dividend for Brexit. How do, how do you feel about the, the possibilities of that? Well, the situation is a frustrating one, because unlike perhaps quite a lot of readers of the New European My view, and I've studied this very carefully, is that it is entirely possible to do uh, Brexit in a green way. 
The frustration is that the appearances so far are that that's mostly not going to happen. Indeed, the reverse. How could Brexit be done in a green way? So I've written multiple reports on this, including for the Green Party MEPs when we still had MEPs um, in uh, in Brussels. And um, basically, the core of my argument was that if you use Brexit as an opportunity to relocalize society, to relocalize your economy, to be less dependent upon international trade, then that would be a way in which it could actually be green. Because it's really important to remember that the trade that we have, the very high levels of trade that that we have at the present time, are in themselves bound to be environmentally damaging. You know, the simple act of transporting large amounts of stuff uh, around the world, the, the the absolute absurdity, for example, of the fact that we export uh, a lot of uh, meat and import a lot of the same, basically the same meat, um, mm. that that is bound to be environmentally uh, damaging, however you do it. Yeah. So if we were to be more self-reliant, we could get around that and that could be done and it would be a really sensible thing for Britain to do at this time. It would be really sensible, for example, for us to try to make sure that we were not so dependent upon upon food uh, grown from elsewhere in the world as we currently are, because we can't rely, frankly, on those uh, supply lines remaining intact uh, yeah. in the years yeah. in the difficult years that are going to be coming ahead. But of course, the the tragedy is that it looks like what this government is determined to do is to move, if anything, on balance in the opposite direction, to have a kind of regulatory race to the bottom and to try to be doing more trade with far-flung nations such as you know, Australia, uh, Singapore, etc. I mean, the worst possible thing you could do environmentally, all other things being equal, is increase trade with Australia because there's literally nowhere further away yeah. um, for you to for you to trade with. So that's the basic idea: become more become more self reliant, and then Brexit could be green. But the, isn't the problem, and the truth, as you've alluded to, there is that it's all dependent upon what they what they want to achieve, and their number one priority is to make. Brexit look like it's a success and if that means compromising the environment then then they'll do that without without you know blinking an eye well but I think they will have to to blink some eyes and that's partly what I'm talking about in my piece in the new new European right that um, they've made various commitments and some of these commitments are going to look really really bad if they break them for example right now they're enaging it seems on their commitment to to maintain or increase animal welfare standards. And a lot of conservative voters care about that, right? A lot of conservative voters actually, for example, are members of the RSPB, are members of the National Trust and so on. They don't want to see bird populations uh, decimated. They don't want to see bees uh, decimated. These kinds of things are going to keep on coming back and haunting the conservatives unless, frankly, well, they wise up and, and start to listen to the advice that myself and others uh, have been uh, giving them. Also, yeah. I would say that uh, that in the longer term, the idea of Britain becoming more self-reliant is just going to look more and more smart. These long supply lines are going to look less and less smart. We've already seen the start of this, I would suggest to you, in the coronavirus pandemic. I think we may have reached peak globalization and it mm. may be going into reverse now. We may have reached peak air travel and it may be going into reverse. If those kinds of trends continue, if we have less commuting, if we have less international trade if we have less international travel it's going to look more and more weird to have a conservative government saying oh what we need to do is be more and more far far flung uh, around the world and uh, and to 
bugger the environmental consequences. Yeah. So I think there are real opportunities here for, for frankly, for winning this debate. How much do you think is down to consumer behaviour, not government behaviour? I'll tell you one thing that always amazes me is like whenever I go into the supermarket and I buy blueberries for the kids because they love blueberries, I always look at where the country of origin and it's an it's an it's an extraordinary thing because it moves around the globe. Obviously, you know, as the season moves, and you know, yeah. in one month they'll be coming from Chile. Uh, uh, two months later, they'll be coming from the States, then eventually from Poland, then eventually from, you know, Hungary or, or Greece or whatever. And, and you, you know, you sit there thinking you're holding this punnet of blueberries in your hand and it's cost a couple of quid and it's been thrown literally across the other side of the world and then flown over here. And we could eat other fruits, you know. I mean, there's nothing to stop us eating soft fruit that's that's grown in the uk but we've got used to eating blueberries all year round and eating you know peaches all year round and and i just wonder you know is it things like chlorinated chicken which will really start to get people thinking about the madness of a lot of the way our food travels around the world yeah absolutely chlorinated chicken is going to be one of the uh, one of the phrases of, of the year, because make no mistake, as I mentioned in my new European piece, the trade deal with America is not all going to be um, lovely now that Biden is the president. The mm. U.S. is going to continue to be pushing for lots of stuff that we don't want in this country, including including that kind of unsafe and unsanitary uh, uh, meat products. Yeah. Now, you ask, is this down to um, consumers? Well, of course, we all have an individual responsibility and we can all exercise that and help a little bit. But the systemic choices are made at the level of government and are made at the level of international trade agreements and so on. And they will they will decide things like how much things cost, which are, you know, pretty big steers. What would we do if we really wanted to to have a, a green Brexit? What would we do if we really wanted to be more self-reliant in food? We would tax stuff like um, uh, ch- uh, chicken from abroad and so on. And we would ban the really bad stuff. Right. Um, yeah. Indefinitely. And we would support, we would offer real subsidies to um, homegrown uh, production, to organic production and so forth. Now, the Conservatives are saying, and I discussed this in my piece, that Conservatives are saying that they're going to bring in a better system of agricultural subsidies than the EU has. And there are some promising signs on that front. We've got to make sure that that happens. Because what we'd really do if we were serious about this, um, what we would do is we would make sure that the 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 cheap choice can also be the ethical choice yeah and we would make sure um that we were growing food that makes um that that can be grown in this country uh without you know intensive inputs of of heat and of pesticides and so on and so forth so people say to me well look i want to have you know blueberries whenever i want to have tomatoes whenever actually in this country frankly we shouldn't be eating tomatoes at least not not except as a luxury in uh, in the winter we should be eating tomatoes in the summer and in the autumn when they're seasonal that's yeah. the key we should be eating and growing foods that are seasonally appropriate and if yeah. we just made that huge shift which the government could incentivize it would have massive beneficial knock-on effects so what's the da- why don't they i mean that just seems like common sense but what are they scared of when i mean what's the downside to that you know are people going to rise up in arms because they can't have blueberries 
Well, indeed, the, the downside is that we would have uh, less constant uh, choice. We would have to we would have to um, be eating things more when they're in season and not when they're not. Of course, mm -hmm. that has its own very real pleasures, right? You can look forward to the season uh, and really enjoy it when it's there. And of course, foods that are grown seasonally as opposed to in uh, foreign greenhouses are often actually a lot more tasty and a lot more nutritious. I'm sure we've all had the experience of having like incredibly dull, tasteless tomatoes from Holland and Spain, for example. Whereas yeah. you get your local tomatoes fresh off the vine near where you live in uh, in August or September, and they're absolutely delicious. Yeah. So yeah, that, in the future, you know, this is going to happen. We're going to have to actually get used to eating more seasonally again and eating stuff that's grown closer to home again. Yeah. The only question is, are we going to make the choice, you know, collectively and voluntarily, or is it going to be forced upon us by international systems and ecosystems falling apart and, and collapsing. That is really the, the blunt choice that I'm discussing in the piece. It's a, it's a fascinating piece. And I, and, I, and I do wonder, taking from just, just picking up on what you were saying there, that whether the, you know, whether the future of, of farming in this country with the emphasis that the government is putting on stuff like rewilding um, is, is really about small producers or whether you know whether this just leads whether this leads to a nation who won't give up their tomatoes and instead um are going to take them from giant polytunnels that are covering the whole of kent and east sussex um yeah we're going to see massive you know huge industrial agricultural um meat farming rather than the the, the kind of the you know the the organic farming that small with small uh, stakeholders that, that you're talking about yeah um, yeah uh, yeah i mean we, we have choices facing us right um uh, and we will reap the consequences of those choices we've seen this with the coronavirus pandemic right if you choose to have a, a world system which prioritizes economic growth over everything else if you choose to keep your borders open even when there is a, a pandemic uh, on the loose if you choose to have mass uh, uh, air travel if you choose to allow dangerous climate change to continue to get worse then you're going to have pandemics like this one and they're going to scythe through populations and scythe through uh, economies if we if we choose to be uh, more intelligent, if we choose in our long term enlightened self interest, we can have a better future. And it applies across the piece. It applies very much to to the food system. You know, if we choose to carry on having industrial uh, meat rearing and um, uh, industrial um, agriculture in general, industrial production of of uh, fruit and vegetables on a very large scale, then we're choosing to have a future in which we're degrading the soil and in which we're worsening the climate and in which our children are going to face uh, more and more difficult living circumstances. Now, you know, if we really care about our children in the way that we say we do, we have to draw the consequences. We have to make the right choices. And when I'm talking about choices here, you know, I'm not just talking about choices in the supermarket. Obviously, I'm talking about political choices. Yeah, yeah. What, what, explain to me, Rupert, why, why the Green Party does so poorly at the at the polls when it's got a great leader uh it's got a it's got a lot of key issues and that people really resonate with people why don't more people vote for the greens yeah it's a it's a very good question <laughs> um <laughs> my my answer it, it has uh, has two aspects firstly 
let's just note before we start that um, the Green Party is actually doing not badly in the opinion polls right now. On some opinion polls, we're ahead of the Lib Dems and we're the third party in the country. Is um, that right? But, I haven't seen that. Yeah, That's amazing. Yeah, the, the Lib Dems have, have sort of had a bit of a collapse of support and the Green Party's gone up to seven, eight, nine a percent wow. in the latest polls, which is, you know, it's not enough, but it's, it's uh, yeah. better than a slap in the face with a wet fish, as we used to say. Um, yeah. Of course, the Green Party does better in most European countries, especially famously in, uh, in Germany, um, mm. and is involved in government in quite a number of European countries. A key reason for that difference is the electoral system, right? First past the post is just very, very punishing for yeah. third and fourth uh, parties makes yeah. it very difficult to break through. So I think you can expect to see um, the Green Party doing quite well at the elections this May, especially uh, in those elections which are taking place by proportional representation systems. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and really, if we're ever going to have uh, an intelligent and grown up politics in this country, which is able to be dynamic and to, re to respond to the great needs of our time, uh, then we are going to need to have proportional representation at Westminster as well. Yeah. One way, in which you could, one way in which you could start with that, of course, is by doing it for the upper house, if you did proper House of Lords reform. And this yeah. is something which, frankly, if, if, um, if Starmer doesn't get serious about changing Labour's policy on this issue, then we'll know that he's not really serious about anything else than old-fashioned uh, Labour tribalism. And, and yet, if you, I mean, I'm looking now, funnily enough, I've got in front of me a, a couple of graphics about uh, the makeup of Westminster as it as it is right now under our first past the post system, and then yeah. as it would have been under one version of, of proportional representation. And of course, the Greens have got one MP right now, but they would have had what is it one two three twelve MPs if it was under PR, and 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 Labour would have had more MPs as well. And in fact, the Conservatives would not have had a majority. So yeah, it, it seems to me that you know we are possibly entering a situation where voting habits are more volatile people are changing yep. the way they Definitely. vote not not because you know their dad and their granddad and their great granddad voted you know labor or tory or whatever but it's more issue based isn't it so maybe you know responding to that will be a way forward to labor seeing you know what the future is going to be about willing coalitions of parties and that's how power is going to be um, uh, demonstrated in the future and, and by the way it's probably Labour's only chance of, of getting in right now uh, for the next decade or so is is by thinking about how can we join with other parties you know so may, maybe PR will get the support of Labour I hope I really believe that it's essential for PR to to replace this first past the post system if Britain's going to really move forward and and, and unite I really do yeah, I couldn't agree more. First past the post creates very divisive uh, politics and it creates governments with big majorities where there is no big majority for their views. I mean, if we'd have had uh, proportional representation, it's not certain what would have happened, but it does make it considerably more likely that we could have stopped uh, Brexit, among other things. I mean, that is just a fact. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, um, it's going to be a test of whether... Labour are actually serious about uh, about changing and about wresting back power to yeah. see whether they decide to commit to real constitutional reform, including um, electoral reform. I confess to you, I'm not holding my breath, but maybe <laughs> people can fire a good shot across their bows at the May elections by voting for parties like the Greens. Yeah, well, we're, listen, we're going to make it one of our key 
kind of rallying points in the new European from now on, because, you know, I, I, I really think the two party system like this is, is not doing this nation any favors. And we've got to, you know, people are talking about representing the public, you know, and, and people have made great play about that in the in the referendum. You know, Absolutely. About how, you know, well, they've got to represent the way people vote. And, you know, the Greens got the equivalent of 12 MPs worth, but they only got one seat. They, the Lib Dems got, God knows, I'm looking at this map, 50 odd, you know, under PR. And they've got, I think, what is it, 12, something like this? Yeah. You know? And so, of course, actually, actually, the Greens would have got a lot more MPs than that if we would have had PR. Why? Because a lot of people don't vote for the Greens because they get exactly. told it's a waste of vote, waste of yeah, vote exactly. under our system. You know, that, exactly. that horrible wasted vote argument and all the nonsense about tactical voting and so on. You just get rid of all of that if you have a good proportional system. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're all united on that. That's, it, uh, that's really good. It is a fascinating topic, which we are going to, uh, as Matt says, uh, write more about and talk more about. And I hope, Rupert, you will uh, you will join us on future podcasts to um, to discuss how the Greens fit into all of this. Thank you so much for, for coming on. It's fascinating. You can read Rupert Reed's uh, great piece about green Brexit. You can also read Ian Dunn on green Brexit uh, in this week's New European, which is available in all good stores. Thank you. And by the way, the, 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 I don't know if people have seen the cover, but if not, nip down to a news agent or go onto social media. There's a very, very amusing cover to illustrate the piece of Boris Johnston looking a little bit like Greta Thornburg. So um, it, it, it's worth a laugh just to find the cover. Well, that was uh, terrific with um, with Rupert Reed, and, and thanks again to yeah. him. Thank um, you, Rupert. Matt, uh, I don't know whether you're aware of this, but at the at this stage in the podcast, we um, we look for entries into our Hall of Shame. It's our new home for rubbish ministers, political blather, things yeah. that are annoying us generally. Who or what would you put in your Hall of Shame this week? Well, can I unite the country by saying Gavin Williamson? <laughs> the most annoying man on radio. And the fact that he's running the education of this nation is... I mean, honestly, I, I wonder, what, has he got any qualifications himself? I mean, he just seems like a blithering idiot. Well, he's, he, he used to sell fireplaces for a living, so I think that's uh, what makes him ideal, the ideal man to... Um, I mean, you know... Of all the ministerial departments, you would expect to have some intellectual heavyweight in, you know, able to, you know, talk to teachers and talk to university professors and, and, and explain articulately the government's direction for educating the next generation. You'd expect that guy to be, or woman indeed, and, you know, I think we should definitely look for a woman next time, although not Pretty Patel, please, but, but you know, this guy comes on the radio and mumbles and bumbles and can't get a sentence out straight and he doesn't seem to have a grip of his own uh, agenda. And, you know, my heart sinks when you think that in this state of chaos, you've got this guy running, you know, possibly for the long term, the most important, edu- you know, the most important government department in Whitehall. It's incredible. I am putting Hat Mancock in the Hall of Shame. Um, <laughs> you, uh, I don't know whether you uh, checked out his interview with our old boss, uh, Piers Morgan, on Good Morning Britain um, this I week. I did. Piers skewered him, didn't he? he uh, Hat Mancock 
basically said, you shouldn't be shouting at me, you should be thanking me and my team, um, <laughs> which, which went down about as well as you can imagine. Of course, I used to try that when I was when I was with my features list with Piers at the Daily Mirror. Uh, don't, don't shout at me, Piers, you should be thanking me and my team. Yeah, it, it didn't work. No. It didn't. It didn't work then. No, it didn't. And it didn't work now. And no. um, I mean, the landlord of Matt, of Hat Mancock's local pub should <laughs> be thanking him because, of course, he he used to run the cock in, and then he got a thirty million COVID uh, contract from um, from Hat yeah. Mancock. Amazing. Suspicious of pubs called the cock in. By the way, it's not the cock up. But it's uh, yes, that's yeah. that's what it should be called. The famous. Yeah, no, that was extraordinary. Stroke. That was an extraordinary stroke of luck, wasn't it, for, for that chap? Just incredible. Who'd have thought that he would have had it behind the behind the bar? All that PPE. Um, Anne Widdicombe is she's a she comes in the hall of shame every week, but then she I think she manages to escape. So yeah. we put her in. I I I just basically I re, I'm addicted to reading. Anne Widdicombe's column in the the Daily Express, and this week it, it, she's a lack, as as she often says, she's raging because Ofcom has launched an investigation into Talking Pictures TV. Do you ever look? At, do you ever see Talking Pictures TV? It's a it's a, a channel which shows old films. Yeah, um, and um, it, it, you know, up to the sort of the sometimes they have something racy from the mid nineteen seventies on. That's about as modern as it gets. I, well, I, like Emmanuel, that kind of thing. Nothing, no, nothing like that. But uh, you know, it, it's it's basically a repository for um, if you want to see, you know, Will Hay films and stuff like that. Some from the forties, fifties, and sixties. It's really good for that. It Will, shows, what, what is, and does Will Hay get up the racy stuff in these it films? Shows, it shows reruns of Cat Weasel. Um, right. It has got Hazel. That's quite racy. Uh, is it Hazel? What's that? Hazel was a 1970s, late 70s detective series with Nicholas Ball um, uh, and uh, Pamela Stevenson was in it, who then got married to Nicholas Ball before she was married to Billy Connolly. And it it was created and co-written by Terry Venables. Do you know all this stuff? Are you reading it off Wikipedia? No, I do. Sadly, I do know all of this stuff. Honestly, I've never met anybody. And I, you, you'll have to take my word for this, listeners. Steve Anglesey's knowledge of of kind of crap, <laughs> crap, useless 70s, 80s kind of music TV, it is unparalleled. Unparalleled. Anyway, mm-hmm. Anne Widdicombe is furious about this. Uh, she says, I turn to Talking Pictures TV every evening because I know I shan't have to face explicit sex scenes, the endless use of the F word, nudity and casual blasphemy the sole complaint that Ofcom is dealing with is about a fleeting appearance of somebody blacking up in an old program censorship is alive well so so, so sorry she's just saying that that's fine is she which I think she's basically saying that what's a bit uh, blacking up among among friends um, uh, she also said that um she had um tri- applied to be the, the, the host of countdown um, who um, I don't know. It's another old mirror person. Um, mm-hmm. Anne Robinson has, has, has won it. Apparently, yeah. Anne Widdicombe applied for it, and she writes: at least Anne Robinson has got staying power, unlike Des O'Connor, Des Lynham, and Jeff Stelling, because she having presented the weakest link for twelve years. And I would like to point out <laughs> that Des O'Connor hosted Des O'Connor tonight for twenty-five years. 
Des Lynham hosted Grandstone for 12 years and Match of the Day for 11 years. And Jeff Stelling has hosted Soccer Saturday for 27 years. So I'm not sure that, um, I'm not sure that, um, that, that they don't have staying power. Um, my final entry for the Hall of Shame this week is Dominic Cummings, who I can't believe is not in it. And he has been accused, this is my favourite story of the week, he's been accused of using Dylan the dog to fight a proxy war against Carrie Simmons, the fiancé of the Prime Minister. Um, he has been accused of spreading negative stories about Dylan, including <laughs> Boris Johnson asking ministers to shoot that effing dog after seeing it run under a table with a rare book in its mouth. Uh, he's also been accused of spreading a story about a row between one of his aides, Katie Lamb, and Carrie Simmons after Katie Lamb was seen pushing Dylan uh, because he weed over her handbag. Well, it's, uh, it's hardly Nicholas Sturgeon and Alex Salmon, but it's a good, it's a good source. It, it's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> and and one Tory source has said that all of the animosity between Dominic Cummings and small, cute dog Dylan mm. can be traced back to an away day at Checkers. Yeah. Uh, they said Cummings was chatting away to his friends when Dylan ran up to him and mounted him, <laughs> leaving him absolutely furious. He was raging. Everyone was laughing, and Dom doesn't like being laughed at. After that, you would bitch about poor Dylan to anyone who would listen. So, that is um, brilliant. I can't get that image out of my head now. What kind of dog is Dylan? Dylan? I don't know. I hope, I hope he's a great Dane. <laughs> he's like a, new, a Newfoundland. No, he's quite a small and cute dog. So Dominic Cummings is in the Hall of Shame. Dylan the dog is in the Hall of Fame, I think. Yeah, yeah, I go with that. Dominic Cummings is fantastic. daring to mount him. Uh, I think that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you, Rupert Reed. Matt, thank you. That was that was a, an excellent um, I enjoyed it. debut, as we, as we, we say. Um, we, we will be back with more guests next week uh, yeah. and until then all is left uh, well what, Steve what, where do people email if they want to tell us what they think about how, how rubbish I was or, or how well they, you they were should, they, can, uh, they can write to letters at the new european.co.uk or we use twitter uh, at the new european uh, or use our facebook readers group um, yep. so follow us on facebook there you can also write in Write yeah. in and let us know what you think and what we should be talking about and what we shouldn't. And, and subscribe, yeah. subscribe to the paper. Yeah, you can go to the neweuropean.co.uk to subscribe. Yeah, we're going to have a big corporation tax bill to pay this year. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all that's left to say is Alistair Campbell, please play your bagpipes. Here you go. <laughs> on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.